Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I'm speaking with George H. Nash, an independent scholar, historian, and lecturer on 20th century American political and intellectual history. As a scholar of American conservative thought and biographer Herbert Hoover, we will be discussing his recent editorial work on the Crusade years. Herbert Hoover's lost memoir of the New Deal era and its aftermath, published by the Hoover Institution Press. As the 31st President of the United States and in the wake of the Great Depression, Hoover lost his bid for re-election in 1932, reaching the lowest point of a long, productive life. Rather than retreat to quiet private life, he spent the next three decades writing and speaking, promoting humanitarian projects, addressing the problem of government efficiency, and as a vocal critic of American intervention abroad. He left a voluminous and detailed memoir, which remained unpublished until recently. The first volume... Freedom Betrayed, also edited by Nash, was published by the Hoover Institution in 2011. Nash has provided a thorough introduction to Hoover's life. The second volume of this memoir, The Crusade Years, covers some of Hoover's private life and lays out his views on the threat of collectivism. Hoover was a relentless crusader against Roosevelt's New Deal policies and a champion of classic liberal philosophy of properly regulated individualism. He resisted the erosion of American liberty by an encroaching state. His political philosophy was not rooted in an unfettered laissez-faire, but in his firm belief in American exceptionalism, ordered liberty, and the possibility of social progress. In contemporary American politics, as noted by Nash, Hoover is both too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals, bringing out the American tension in striking a balance between free markets and government regulation. Here's my conversation with George H. Nash. Let me introduce you to the editor of the Crusade Years, George H. Nash. George, welcome. Thank you. And thank you for sharing your thoughts with my audience. Herbert Hoover's memoirs does, I think, reclaim his important contribution to American conservative thought. But before we get into the book, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you became interested in Hoover and editing his memoir. Thank you. It's very good to be with you today. I am a historian, an independent scholar, a lecturer, a historian of American conservatism, and a biographer of Herbert Hoover. And on those latter two subjects, I've spent most of my time as a historian over the years. I became interested in Hoover in a very unusual way. Uh, After receiving my doctorate in history in 1973 from Harvard, I was on the academic job market expecting to find employment in some college or university. And out of the blue came uh, an opportunity that really changed the entire direction of my career. I was invited in brief by a foundation in Iowa to undertake a scholarly biography, really a comprehensive scholarly biography of Herbert Hoover. I think the folks in Iowa, a foundation that had built the Hoover historic site birthplace at his uh, home town of West Branch, Iowa, they had heard about my doctoral dissertation, which was then in the process of being published. 
that was on American conservative intellectuals since 1945. Hoover was not a figure in that dissertation, but he was a friend of many of the people in the dissertation. So when I learned of their interest in finding someone to undertake a long-term assignment like this, I had to ask myself, uh, do I really want to study Herbert Hoover? It was not something I'd ever dreamed of doing. But I realized that he was, uh, in many ways, a logical next stage in my research and writing in that he was, as I said, a friend of many of the people about whom I had written my dissertation. And so I quickly decided uh, that this was a man who was underestimated, understudied, certainly, a man who has been pigeonholed and really relegated to the back row, you might say, of the uh, 44 or so people who've been president of the United States. And so it intrigued me, and I learned that my sponsors wanted academic work and not just public relations of some kind for Hoover, that they wanted scholarship, and that's what I'd been trained to, to write, having, as I said, recently received my doctorate. So in the mid-70s, I landed in West Branch, Iowa, and became a kind of de facto resident scholar out there for a number of years, writing under contract several volumes of this series on his life and times. Fast forward now to a much more recent time. I, over the course of my career, I've published several volumes on Hoover articles, conference papers, and the like, given lectures about them. But it was not until 2009 that I was approached with a project. Again, this was something that was not done on my own initiative, but uh, I was approached by someone representing the Hoover family. And to give you a little bit of background on this, Hoover lived from 1874 to 1964. Before he died, in the last years of his life, really, the last two decades of his life, he wrote several volumes, eventually six large volumes of memoirs. Four of them he published in his lifetime. But there were two, it now turns out, that he did not. One of these was known to exist because he referred to it in other places. But after he died, this memoir on foreign policy in World War II, one of the set of six uh, volumes, this memoir was put in store and hit the family foundation because that volume was a very searing critique of Roosevelt's foreign policy, as well as a memoir of what Hoover was doing in the years of the 1930s and 40s, the, the period of World War II and its aftermath. Hoover's volume was called informally the magnum opus. That's because of the size of it. And he wrote draft after draft after draft over a long period of time while writing all these other collateral volumes and doing much else besides. So after he died in 1964, the manuscript was effectively finished at the time of his death. He regarded it as, as being so. But the family decided, for reasons that are not entirely clear, but it appears that they felt that to published a controversial book like this just after his death, just after a state funeral, just after his return to some level of public appreciation in his later years, that that would revive all the old political quarrels and turmoil, and it wouldn't really not be good for his reputation. And so they decided to put it in storage, and that's where it remained. Historians like myself knew that that volume existed, but they did not see it. We did not see it. But then in 19, by 2009, the immediate 
generation of Hoover descendants had passed away, and the next generation, represented in particular by a grandson, felt that the time had come to release this manuscript for publication. And I was contacted and asked whether, as a Hoover scholar, I would look at this previously uh, unseen memoir, The Magnum Opus, Freedom Betrayed, and edit it for publication. And that is what I did, and that book came out in 2011. But in the course of preparing that manuscript for publication, looking at all the drafts and doing um, uh, uh, editing work for it, I discovered a parallel volume, a volume on what Hoover called his crusade years as an ex-president. It turned out that he was not only writing in his later years uh, this polemical study of Roosevelt's foreign policy, meant to be a critique of FDR, but he was also at the same time, some of the time, writing a parallel volume about his crusade against Roosevelt in domestic politics. I did not know until I found it in the 200 or so boxes of magnum opus materials that this parallel volume even existed. And I don't think anyone at that point, certainly no historian, was even aware that this manuscript um, was uh, uh, in existence. And so after editing for publication, Freedom Betrayed, the foreign policy magnum opus, uh, I, was, I contacted the Hoover Family Foundation and explained that there is yet another manuscript that's been hidden away and that it deserves uh, to be brought forward. And I was then asked to edit that, and that volume came out in 2013. So I've had almost an entire career devoted to Hoover scholarship in one form or another, and the most recent manifestation of my own interest was editing for publication, The Crusade Years, which was Hoover's memoir of the New Deal era and its aftermath. Okay, so The Crusade Years is what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, what do we need to know about Hoover's, before we get into the ideas, uh, what do we need to know about Hoover's background, his character, that uh, is going to illuminate uh, what he's going to be saying in this, in this memoir? Well, Hoover was a man who had several careers, and the presidency of the United States was only one of them, you might say. He was a mining engineer, a a humanitarian, uh, Secretary of Commerce in the 1920s. He was on the public stage in American life, you could say, about 50 years from 1914 until his death. And only four of those years were his presidency. He left the presidency as a comparatively young man in 1933. He was not quite 59 years old, and he lived longer as an ex-president than any other ex-president until Jimmy Carter. Uh, Hoover, uh, Carter recently surpassed Hoover's record. Hoover's record was 31 and a half years, and during that long period of his life, roughly a third of his entire life, the 1930s on until 64, Hoover was in the thick of many battles politically. He was in a quest for his own vindication after being so repudiated at the polls in 1932. And so he felt this need to explain himself and also, in his view, to explain the stakes, the stakes that were uh, present in this great battle over the direction of of the American government uh, during the New Deal period and beyond. And so in 1940, and there are many other collateral points that could men- one could mention, I suppose. But in 1940, Hoover hoped to run for president again. 
he really had been yearning for a rematch against Roosevelt. And in 1940, he hoped to be the candidate of a deadlocked convention. That did not happen because out of the blue came Wendell Wilkie, and that upset everybody's plans. Hoover's plan had been to give a stemwinder of a speech at the convention and reestablish himself as the party's giant, intellectual giant among pygmies and get another chance to run and vindicate himself. And he hoped turn back the New Deal and keep the United States out of World War II, which would already had already begun. He was greatly disappointed. Much happened at that convention. We might discuss that later in the hour. But in the summer of 1940, after he saw his last chance for political uh, rehabilitation vanish, he turned to writing his memoirs. And among those memoirs, ultimately, were the two that we've been mentioning already. Now, he, was, he came from, what kind of background did he come from? He was a Quaker of background. He was yes. very successful before he even became president. He became president, or rather, he was already wealthy or moderately wealthy. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, he was a, um, an orphan who worked himself up uh, through Stanford University, the first four-year class at Stanford University, went off to uh, Australia and then to China and then around the world, became based in London as an eminent mining engineer. Earned a fortune, which is probably worth something like two to four million dollars in 1914 and 1914 money. So he was well to do, not a Rockefeller rich type of person or Andrew Mellon or someone like that at the time, but still comfortably well off and able to devote himself, therefore, to what he was then craving to do, namely public service. He said just making money isn't enough. He wanted, as he put it, to get into the big game somewhere, the big game of public life. Well, that door opened unexpectedly in August of 1914 when he was in London and World War I broke out. He helped over 100,000 American travelers in Europe escape the, the battle lines, get back to London and be sent back safely home. He organized that temporary relief effort. That brought him to the attention of the American ambassador and others who then tapped him to head a relief mission for the civilian population of Belgium. That was thought to be a likely short-term effort. Instead, as we know, World War I bogged down in the trenches, and Hoover ended up becoming uh, a humanitarian figure uh, and going from, from great project to great project, ultimately being responsible for saving tens of millions of lives, truly, between 1914 and the early 1920s. All of that put him on the American public stage, but outside of politics. He never ran for any other office except President of the United States. He was Secretary of Commerce during the 20s under Harding and Coolidge and made his great reputation as a kind of uh, wonder worker, or so it was seen. He was called the great humanitarian, etc. cetera. Uh, and so in 1928, after Coolidge decided not to run, Hoover was already uh, at the pinnacle of public life. And so quite unusually for American presidents, especially for one who had no military record to run on, Hoover ran and was elected president without ever having held a, a prior elective public office. Now, it seems to me from reading your introduction on what we know about Hoover is that the presidency was actually those four years were like the low point of his life because he was very successful beforehand. He, he had the presidency and, and, and left in a very low 
place in terms of public opinion and politics. And then he sort of, over the next 31 years, really rebuilds uh, his position in terms of a person who is really engaged in critiquing uh, policy, foreign policy, domestic policy, really uh, out there. He doesn't just retreat to quiet, you know, life. So it's kind of interesting that the presidency, which we would think would be the height of his career, really wasn't wasn't the greatest thing he did. I think I think that's uh, an accurate statement. That's the way he's come down in popular memory. In fact, most people, most Americans, don't know very much at all about what was on either side of the four years as president. Obviously, that's the pinnacle of anyone's life. There are so few who ever attained the presidency of the United States, and it was period of, of, of great historical importance. But up to that point, Hoover's life had been one uh, on a trajectory going ever upward. He never really had known failure or at least great frustration. I think that he has not been given sufficient credit until quite recently by historians for his initiative and his seriousness of purpose. Uh, there's long been a caricature that he was just cold, hard-hearted, and did nothing. And I think those caricatures are false. But he did leave um, the White House uh, rejected like no American in his lifetime. And this was uh, a a devastating blow. And I do think part of the the psychic motivation of Hoover after that period was this natural effort to vindicate himself and to show that he had had good intentions and that he could still contribute greatly to the uh, to the public wheel. And in the 30s, he didn't immediately jump back into the, uh, the presidential political fray. He took a couple of years in Palo Alto, where he was living, California, on the Stanford campus, uh, and kept quiet. But he became more and more alarmed by what he thought was a, uh, a statist tendency on the part of the New Deal. And so he wrote a book in 1934 called The Challenge to Liberty, which was a a kind of a philosophical critique of of, uh, various forms of statist ideology at the time, Nazism, communism, fascism, socialism, and what he called regimentation, uh, FDR's New Deal. And he contrasted these with what he called historic liberalism, the term that he now preferred as an identifier for himself. So he, he eases back into it. And I believe that he was yearning much of that time, especially by 1940, for actually getting back on the ticket and running uh, for president again. And when that was denied him, he, of course, did much else. But one thing he poured his energies into was the the story of his life, but not just a story of his life, but really a, a critique of what he saw as a tremendous wrong turning in 1932 when America went for a new deal and in his view, turned the course of the country for a hundred years. So, how does this uh, memoir that he's uh, that he wrote, the Crusade Years, particularly, uh, uh, re- recover him in, a, in the history of American thought in the twentieth century? Does it do uh, Does it do a lot in, in putting him back into how we think politically about domestic policy? I think this doesn't contribute substantially to a better understanding of what Hoover was, where he came from, where he ended up on the political spectrum. I, I, I've written an essay, it's been a lecture over the years, entitled Herbert Hoover, Political Orphan. And I argue that uh, he's not really welcome in the pantheon either of the right or the left. 
Uh, the left looks at him through the older lenses, uh, the Hoover, the uncaring, Hoover uh, supposedly a disciple of laissez-faire, which I think is quite an accurate uh, description of him. But at any rate, he, he was regarded as, as a kind of stuffy and ineffectual figure, uh, defender of business interests and so on. And on the other hand, he, for a while, the conservatives thought of him as a kind of heroic fighter against the New Deal, this crusader against collectivism, as Hoover called him. Uh, more recently, conservatives and libertarians are not at all fond of Hoover. Uh, even as we speak, there are, there are pieces out there on the Internet I was looking at earlier uh, comparing uh, uh, Hoover's tariff policies to some of the views being expressed by candidates today and attacking Hoover's as president. And so you rarely get a positive word for Hoover in conservative circles today or progressive or liberal circles. So he is a kind of political orphan. But he started out as a bull moose Teddy Roosevelt supporter in 1912. And his party background, to the extent that it mattered, was Republican. He, he said with a smile, I suppose, in his memoirs that the only Democrat in his village in Iowa when he was growing up was the town drunk. And so the, the idea that was the Republicans are the party of the successful, of the responsible people, of the people who are making constructive changes in our society. And he saw himself as that kind of a person, an engineer, and a man who wanted to do good as well as do well for himself. And he went into pol political life in the teens, serving under President Wilson in nonpartisan wartime capacities as food administrator and relief administrator, but he built up a tremendous reputation as a kind of a small-p progressive, and he had thought of himself as a progressive Republican. In 1920, among the many unusual aspects of Hoover's life, Franklin Roosevelt, among others, wanted Hoover to run for president as a Democrat, succeeding Woodrow Wilson, who was, had been stricken by a stroke. And the Democrats were desperate, and Hoover had built up this great nonpartisan reputation as, as an achiever, as a humane person, as a reformer even. The New Republic magazine supported Hoover. Walter Lippmann felt well of him. Justice Louis Brandeis was impressed by him. There were all sorts of people who uh, supported Hoover for president in 1920, thinking of him as a progressive. And in fact, he called himself one. But he entered, or rather re-entered or returned to the Republican fold but on more or less the moderately progressive wing of the Republican Party, which meant he was a, somewhat to the left of Coolidge, and uh, he was suspect among the party conservatives, but some of the more militant progressive Republicans distrusted him as too much in league with big business. So once again, Hoover gets caught in the middle, and he is subject to some distancing, some suspicions on the part of the other side. So he gets to the presidency, and then... He faces a new crisis. Now, in 1922, he wrote a book called American Individualism, in which he laid out sort of his philosophy uh, of what he thought made America great or the future America, what the foundational ideas were. Can you kind of talk a little bit about what, what he meant by American individualism? What were yes. the features of that? Yes, uh, Hoover was, was profoundly affected by what he saw in Europe at the end of World War I, the turmoil in the year or so after the war, when he was there for almost a year, uh, feeding many nations where, where starvation was threatened and, and so on. And he saw the, the upheavals, and he felt driven, I think, 
to define his own political philosophy. And in particular, he, he looked at the United States as largely exempt from that kind of dissension and so on. And he started asking himself, well, why is America different? Why is it unique in his view? And he had been an American engineer traveling abroad, and he had never become a uh, an expatriate in the sense of, of repudiating America. It seemed to deepen his sense of, of, of feeling for his own country. So he comes back to the United States uh, late 1919, and he then sees the turmoil at home, the great strikes in 1919, the inflation, the, the, uh, the difficulty of, of, of getting back to what Harding called normalcy. And Hoover starts thinking about all of this. And so he distills his thinking in 1922 in a little book called American Individualism, in which he argues that American, American individualism is not the same as laissez-faire. It's not rapacious capitalism unregulated, nor is it to be thought of in terms of moving toward socialism, statism, government control of the economy. It, it operates in a sort of middle sphere. And he argued that the great bonding agent or the great philosophical underpinning of, of um American life was the belief in the equality of opportunity. And he argued that equality of opportunity was our most precious social ideal, but it could not just take care of itself. It needed a certain amount of government intervention, but more or less government, as he later put it, as umpire, as providing a kind of a, a regulatory framework for the natural competitive and creative and uh, assertive uh, instincts of people, people so they could better their own lives. He didn't want to stultify that, but he re regarded the United States as needing a kind of a middle way between the extreme of laissez-faire and the extreme of statism. So it's a positive book because in the 1920s, he felt that the threats to American individualism were controllable, but he, he sees America then as having a kind of unique civilization uh, moving away from the extremes of of Europe and in need, therefore, of a kind of guidance from, from people like himself, but not guidance in the sense of command and control, but rather drawing upon the best minds of the community, drawing upon voluntary effort. This is a key part of Hoover, a great belief that Americans had the ability at the grassroots to organize themselves in their own communities and, and through great institutions, philanthropies, trade associations, and the like, that America was a society that was much more dynamic and, and, and open to people like himself. He had been the son of a blacksmith, and I don't think he ever forgot that. And he felt that if he had lived in Europe or had been born in Europe and lived there, he probably would have remained somewhat in that class of society. But he saw America as a land of opportunity requiring some government uh, efforts and so forth, but not government control, not government organization of the of the private sector. So again, it puts him in this this middle of the road role, if you will, where he gets criticized for doing too much or for doing too little, depending upon one's ideological point of view. So he's definitely a believer in American exceptionalism, yeah. and but he and also believes, even though I I. From reading what you wrote, yeah, I tend to think of him as being a conservative uh, because he's uh, wanting to restrain uh, the power of government. But he also believes in social progress, the possibility of social progress, which makes him a, a progressive in a certain sense also. 
He's not. So he does. He kind of has a lot of faith in 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 the individual and the possibility that uh, that social ills can be taken care of through benevolence, through charitable efforts. Because he was he himself felt that way. He felt like he needed to help other people, but he he felt that that was sort of underneath the American in the American character. Is that correct? Yes, I, I think so. He, he felt that he sometimes called it the American system or the, the American tradition, and he saw this as coming under threat. And what partly happened to him in his presidency is this. Early on, he was very much an activist by historic standards as president in trying to respond to the Great Depression in its earlier phases, before it was known to be a Great Depression. And in the fall of 1929, for example, as president, he brought trade union leaders and leaders of industry together, and they promised certain efforts to be cooperative, no no strikes, no reduction of wages, uh, organizing uh, community efforts to help with unemployment and the like as, as the depression continued. And he saw this as America at its best, doing this voluntarily without some kind of great bureaucratic apparatus trying to coordinate and ultimately stultify the effort. And so he, I think, was outflanked on his left so that early on you could say he was a progressive Republican president, but he had this peculiar mix of being both a progressive and an anti-statist. He always saw the limits to uh, the the threat of, of total state action. And that tended to separate him from those who were, wanted to be more experimental with the use of government or turn, as Roosevelt did, toward much more activist, interventionist government. So Hoover saw himself then as being, in a sense, a conservative. And as time went by, uh, he really became more a man of the right. And he said, and I would, I would just quote just a couple of lines, a letter that he wrote in the 1930s after Roosevelt's been in power for a little while. And he, he put it this way, he said, the New Deal had corrupted the label of liberalism to mean collectivism and coercion and concentration of political power. And he said, that being the case, it seems that historic liberalism must be conservatism in contrast. And he had thought of himself as a historic liberal, but now he sees himself in a conservative role. So I would argue that this book that we're discussing, The Crusade Years, is the product of Hoover in that phase of his life, arguing for historic liberalism as opposed to statism. Okay, he has major, major concerns and major critiques of Roosevelt and the New Deal. Vigorous, uh, vocal critic. Um, yes. Let's talk about the nature of those uh, critiques because, you know, the New Deal, since the New Deal happened, um, has been championed by Americans of all kinds of all stripes. Even conservatives now would concede uh, you know, things like Social Security. So uh, let's talk about what Hoover's issues were with the New Deal. His critique. Well, first, he was, uh, yes. First, he was very, very disturbed by what he felt was Roosevelt's um, nonchalance, if not worse, during the interregnum between Hoover's presidency and the advent of Roosevelt in March of 1933. During that period, those last months of Hoover's presidency, after the election, but before Roosevelt was inaugurated, uh, the great banking crisis occurred. And Hoover argued that 
Roosevelt should have cooperated more with Hoover in issuing statements that would reassure, reassure the panicky public, etc. And he came to feel that Roosevelt was rather willing to allow everything to spiral downhill. It would mean that Roosevelt could start afresh and Hoover would be all the more uh, discredited in Hoover's policies. And Hoover felt that Roosevelt had been terribly irresponsible in that, with that attitude. And he said that the, the bank depositors panic of the early 33 was wholly unnecessary. Hoover argued that the economy had started to turn around. It had bottomed out and started to turn around in the summer and early fall of 1932. And there are some statistics that suggest that, but it didn't last. And why didn't it last? Well, historians and economists are still arguing about that. But Hoover argued that it was fear of the advent of the New Deal and various hints that Roosevelt had been giving that he might be uh, going off the gold standard or departing from what was considered safe and sound orthodoxy. So Hoover's first complaint was that the New Deal came in uh, on a sense on false pretenses, uh, that it would, it had, um, Roosevelt had permitted things to happen that in the way of de- worsening of the economy that did not have to happen. And so he, he, much of his argument then in this book becomes a, an attempt to establish a different history lesson, looking back and saying, look, this was not uh, a, a pro- the, the, the Great Depression was not a product of, um, of a Republican uh, indifference uh, or mis- financial mistakes. It uh, really had started to get better, but Roosevelt, for very selfish political reasons, said Hoover, had allowed this to get worse, and it could have been prevented. The crash of the final crash of the banks closing and so on was entirely preventable in Hoover's view. Now, once the New Deal starts on its own course, Hoover has many objections uh, to it. He sees, for one thing, the growth of a, a great deal of bureaucracy. There were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of new federal workers employed. He argued that this was a kind of Praetorian guard, as he called it, of political hangers-on and so on, that Roosevelt was building up a kind of a political machine uh, and, and dealing with relief matters in a very politicized way in contrast to what Hoover thought was a nonpartisan, community-based way. And so that was a, a major critique. He, he objected to going off the gold standard. He objected to many of the New Deal agencies. And what he saw is happening in the early New Deal was that Roosevelt was trying to mix a free economy and American constitutional freedoms with an attempt at government direction of the economy or even government operation of the economy. And we have to use the terms carefully, but to Hoover, government dictation to the economy was the the definition of fascism. And government operation of it, operation of industry, nationalization of industries, whatever, was socialism. So he saw the New Deal as trying to mix elements that in Hoover's view did not mix and that would have the result of weakening the traditional American system that he felt had worked so well. So those are some of the broad issues on which he uh, became a vehement critic of FDR. And probably uh, FDR's long tenure didn't help, because it probably looked to Hoover like a power grab. Yes, one of the uh, there were he had different kinds of, of critiques of Roosevelt. I, I've been mentioning some of the economic critiques, if you will. But one of the things that he found most disturbing was what he saw as the growth of personal power, uh, centralization of power in the executive, reduction of Congress to a rubber stamp, and even uh, intimidation of the Supreme Court. 
the court packing battle of 1937. So he felt that Roosevelt was having the effect not only of changing the nature of the economy and perhaps leading to stagnation and a kind of bureaucratic state that would not permit people to rise, not to have the same level of equality of opportunity as before, but also he felt the American political process was itself, as he put it, being polluted and and deformed. So he had a political objection. And this book in part is Hoover as political philosopher uh, on the march, really uh, critiquing Roosevelt. As you know from, I'm sure you're reading of the book, much of what Hoover does in this book is to quote himself, his famous speeches of criticism of FDR. And so Hoover sees himself as in a crusade to save not just the American economy, but the American way of life, the American constitutional order. He sees all of that as under assault from this lurch to the left of FDR, a lurch that he didn't feel was genuinely necessary in the first place. Now, he wasn't just uh, against all government intervention like he talked before, he said before, but he, because he, he believed in properly regulated individualism. Now, how do, we, how do we determine the limits of regulation or how do we determine the limits of individualism? This is a, a, a problem in American political life. Yes, yes. Well, um, let me just say in preface that in 1932, at the end of the campaign in Madison Square Garden, Hoover gave um, a speech, a campaign speech, in which he said that this was more than a contest between two men and two parties. It was a battle of political philosophies that would affect and determine the nation's course for a hundred years to come. And I think most historians would probably say he was right about that, that this was a fundamental turning. And Hoover argued that this was a battle of political philosophies and not simply a battle of personalities. Now, it's hard to answer a question uh, too, too um, uh, briefly uh, when one deals with issues of regulation and so on, but Hoover's formula was that he believed in, in uh, government regulation of business, but by that he meant government setting the rules, uh, government as umpire, not governor as chooser of who wins and who loses. Hoover would, I think, have been opposed to what we call crony capitalism today, the idea that government in collusion with certain industries can either make them prosperous or work with them uh, in in some way to, to improve the broader economy. He thought that that was a very corrupting and, and in, by his definition, a very fascistic tendency. And he said that tendency came out of World War I, and he had experienced that himself as food administrator. And I think that probably that experience affected some of his thinking later on. So he argued that, that the you could have laissez-faire, which he categorically rejects, no regulation at all, or you could have dictation, again, as I said before, his idea of fascism, uh, the Mussolini state model, or you could have socialism outright, and he regarded that as inefficient and dangerous to liberty as well. So the happy medium to Hoover although it, it's a little abstract sounding, is government as umpire. And um, much of his critique in the 30s and 40s was not so much of New Deal failures and, <clears throat> pardon me, in pro- programmatic um, senses, although he could be pretty sharp on those points too, but more a critique of the philosophy of them, the, the, the assumptions behind them. So much of his critique 
uh, to his enemies was just abstract and and un, unconnected to the real world of suffering people. That was the way they would look at these critiques. Whereas he was arguing that he was taking the long view and that this would be uh, the New Deal was setting us on a course to to stagnation and and if not worse in terms of, of loss of freedom and creativity. Now, in, in light of what your previous work that you've done on conservative thought, where would you put Hoover? You, you've already indicated that he's sort of a, an orphan, a political orphan, but there are some key ideas that he is continually um, bringing up that are still very present. Uh, I, I think right now in this particular day, this particular moment, it seems like uh, his form of you know, conservatism, classic liberalism, uh, is pretty much dead, but there are still some key ideas that have been battered around in the last you know couple of decades. Can you identify some of those for us yes. where he fits in? Well, conservatism in in the latter part of Hoover's life and beyond has had uh, it's been a river with many tributaries: uh, anti-communists, uh, traditionalists, social conservatives, neoconservatives. There are all sorts of different labels to conservatives now. But the one that Hoover fits in most with, I would say, uh, was what you just alluded to, classical liberalism, free market, limited government, um, and uh, sometimes one would say libertarianism, but that probably uh, is not quite the accurate term to use for Hoover. Classical liberal would be would be more so. I think that Hoover, one of Hoover's major contributions to American life uh, in his post-presidency, was the revitalization of the classical liberal strand of thinking. And that book of his, The Challenge to Liberty, published in 1934, uh, uh, sold over 100,000 copies. It was a, a major um, manifesto in response to the New Deal. And he was himself, in his later years, a proud sponsor of many kinds of classical liberal conservative causes, uh, the Freeman Magazine, an antecedent to Buckley's National Review, was started in the early 50s. Hoover was instrumental in bringing that about. Uh, there are many other examples that could be given. So Hoover saw himself as defending uh, economic freedom. When Roosevelt made his Four Freedom speech in 1941, Hoover said he left out the fifth freedom, economic freedom. So Hoover argued that you couldn't have economic freedom you couldn't have a system in which people could be free in religion and thought and speech and yet not be free in terms of employment, ability to change jobs, ability to be entrepreneurs, to invest and so on, that, you had, that, that all the freedoms went together. And so Hoover insisted on that point. And I think that his critique of statism, as he called it, or he had various other terms, uh, creeping collectivism and creeping socialism and so forth, there are a number of terms that he uses in his polemics in this book. His argument was that you had to battle all of those in order to maintain America as a vibrant society, a dynamic society. Uh, and his argument then, I think, was, was rather effective in reviving and maintaining that stream of thought. And as time went by, uh, the New Deal made mistakes and uh, there were criticisms at the grassroots, and there was a reaction against it in 1946, for example, in the congressional elections and later on. So Hoover, in that later part of his post-presidential period, uh, from the 40s to 64, was a kind of grandfather figure, if you will, 
uh, grand old man of the Republican right. And he went to the conventions and the party cheered him and so forth. I think in that period, he was uh, a rather effective behind the scenes figure in being a both a symbol and also a stimulant to um, anti-collectivist activism on the part of the right. And I do think that that is a part of Hoover's perhaps underestimated um, um, contributions uh, to uh, American politics in the mid 20th century. Now, it's interesting when we hear the word economic freedom, we hear individualism. Uh, we, today, we think in terms of what we're experiencing, which is this neoliberalism, laissez-faire, uh, sort of a social economic Darwinism. And this is and this is definitely not how you're presenting uh, Hoover in your introduction, because he put a lot of emphasis, and you really emphasize this, his his whole idea of benevolence, the work that he did before, and his con- concept of benevolent benevolent institutions. He really had a, a faith that this, uh, what the government he didn't think the government should be doing, would be filled by benevolence. Can you explain, uh, talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that's very interesting because I think we think of, of, of economic individualism as being sort of this ruthless, let people just die and starve. And, and this is not, this is not Hoover. That is not Hoover. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier in passing, I'll, I'll repeat it. Hoover saved tens of millions of lives in Europe through his vast humanitarian re- work starting with the relief of the entire civilian population of Belgium in World War I. And this went on after the war in more than 20 countries. Millions of lives were saved by Hoover's relief effort in Soviet Russia in 1921 to 1923. So Hoover earned the epithet, the great humanitarian, uh, the Napoleon of mercy. And it has been said of him, I think correctly, that he was probably responsible for saving more lives than any person who had ever lived. That's a remarkable thing to say. Some people said, though, well, why did he feed Europe but not feed the United States? And he argued that in America, unlike much of Europe as he saw it, Americans had a kind of Tocquevillian network of self-help and organizational ability and willingness to take responsibility and not simply wait for the distant state and the distant capital to kind of come in and tell them what to do. And that was the kind of America that he felt he had grown up with on the frontier of Iowa. His parents were Quakers and the Quakers emphasized communal self-help, for example. I think that had some impact on him. Uh, His going to Stanford taught him the importance of making something of oneself, but then giving back in in life. There were a whole set of influences, his engineering ethic as a professional engineer, engineers do constructive things. All of that played into Hoover's um, ethos of philanthropy. And it should be said, uh, just one little factoid here that might be germane, Hoover never took money for his public service, or if he had to take it as he had to accept his presidential salary, uh, he didn't spend it on himself. He gave it to charity, uh, Red Cross, big contributions, for example. And he was very proud of that. He said, I have been successful. My country has done much for me. He would not accept payment. 
And he poured his energies into philanthropy. And that's one of the main themes, really, of this book. His argument that what we might today call civil society could work and that those who have much from them, much is expected. And so late in his life, for example, he headed up the Boys Club of America movement for almost 30 years and transformed it. It grew enormously during his uh, period of stewardship. Uh, He was constantly giving away money quietly to people in need, to help people through college and so forth. His own brother remarked in the 1930s that he thought that Hoover had given away more than half of his profits to help other people. So Hoover practiced what he preached, and uh, I I wrote an essay about him for an encyclopedia of philanthropy, and I think Hoover very properly belongs in the encyclopedia uh, because uh, of practicing this philosophy. But it wasn't that he just had money to spend and could do it. It wasn't that. In his view, the American people were like that. And so that is why he emphasized so much during the Depression years the the self-help that Americans organized communally through churches and and civil societies, fraternal organizations and like, the the amount that they could do. And he argued, and I think rather eloquently actually in this book in places, that one should not simply leave all that to some distant state to do it for you. And he argued that this was really a a spiritual obligation, a moral obligation, as uh, well as something that would improve uh, the society um, by the quality of such service. So that was a a motif. And again, it belies the old stereotype that Hoover somehow was this uh, wealthy man who had no concern for anyone else. I think because he himself had been uh, a child of misfortune, he was orphaned uh, before he was 10, uh, things like that, that he had an unusual sensitivity for the experience of children. And there are many anecdotes that one could discuss along those lines. And he did much for different children's causes over the years as well. As well, So I think that Hoover practiced what he preached. So what can Hoover teach us today in our political situation? Is there any place where Hoover's type of conservatism is alive or thriving or just eking out some sort of existence? Because it seems like this sort of philosophy is... Uh, pretty much gone. I think think that's actually there, there is a revival of certain aspects of Hoover's thought, at least they would have resonance today. Uh, I I emphasized earlier the, the anti-statist thought that, that critique of state action of, of the, of the extremely interventionist state was one that he uttered uh, persistently and, and, uh, quite, quite uh, stirringly at times even um, in his post-presidential period. And that has a lot of resonance today on the right, although the right doesn't know it <laughs> in the sense that very few people turn to Hoover when they're thinking of historic role models uh, for the present time, as I said earlier on in this discussion. So that, that aspect um, is, is important. I think Hoover would be useful to study because he is a man who thought about things, whether one agrees with his philosophy ultimately or not, I think one would be impressed from this book by how much effort he put into his speeches. These are not sound bites that he's uttering or sloganeering. Uh, he, he has a, a very uh, serious uh, 
devotion to explaining things. And it really, uh, really strikes me as very different from the kind of political discourse that we hear today uh, in, in, uh, in all the, the babble that, that is going on currently. And it's, it's quite a contrast between that and Hoover. Hoover was unusual among our presidents in that he wrote two books of political philosophy. Uh, one of them you mentioned, we've discussed American individualism, the other, the challenge to liberty. And I don't know of very many presidents who had thought about what the meaning of America was and why America is different to them, why America is, seems to be a successful society, how it can be improved. They all have arguments uh, as aspirants for the presidency of how they wanted to make positive changes. But Hoover worked it out in a, in a, a level of, if you will, political theory that is, I think, quite unusual for uh, American presidents. And I think one reason for that was that he saw so much of the world in contrast. Because he had lived abroad so much as a young man, mining engineer, because he dealt with so many countries in humanitarian work, he came back feeling that America was a special place to be improved. That's part of him, but preserved. That's also part of him. So you might call him a progressive conservative. Some have called him a conservative progressive. Uh, he, he called himself a historic liberal for a while. There are different terms that might use. But I guess what I come down thinking is that the man had a lot of substance to him that deserves a serious attention, respectful attention, whether or not one finally accepts his basic point of view. Now, this, this is a really pretty astounding primary text. It's, it's huge. Is there more? Is there more left in, in his uh, archive that we haven't you know, seen? Probably not of any major character. One can never be certain. That's part of the fun of being a historian, detective work, and these two volumes that I was given the opportunity to edit uh, are, are an example of that, that Freedom Betrayed manuscript went through it probably something like 20 different drafts. I chose the final one, the one that he felt was the one he wanted to issue to the world just before he died, and he didn't live to see it happen. Uh, that is not as long as the antecedent drafts that fill up dozens of boxes out there at the Hoover Institution in California and a few at the Hoover Library in uh, West Branch, Iowa. So uh, both of these volumes have many more variant drafts. I, again, went with the one that he polished to what he saw as the, the, the form that he wished to release it to the world. So in that sense, you could go back and see more. Uh, he did rather tantalizingly uh, allude at a few places to little mini memoirs that he was writing that I've never found uh, he said his crusade against World War III, I think it was. I think that was a reference to his battle in the early 50s over American military policy vis-a-vis -vis Europe and Asia. But so far as I know, he never got around to writing it. So did there you might see, still be um, fragments you, out there. Did you see, uh, was there marked change in his thought over time? You said there were antecedent uh, drafts. Were, did you see change? Or even in this final draft, change over time, how he th thought about something and then changed his mind? Or was he pretty uh, set in how what he thought and kind of carried it through for 30 years? I don't see much change in, in thought. Uh, there was certainly a change in tone in the, the Freedom Betrayed volume, the parallel one to the one we're talking about today. Freedom Betrayed, his critique of Roosevelt's foreign policy, 
the very title gives you some sense of the polemical thrust of it, but it was much more polemical, much more prosecutorial in tone in its earlier versions. And he self-consciously modulated that later on. And it turned, as I've said to people, uh, something into a doctoral dissertation in character, uh, much more restrained and, and less uh, argumentative. So there was a, a tone for whatever tactical reasons, uh, but I don't think that the substance of his thinking about these two great spheres, foreign and domestic policy, changed that much once he left the White House. What remains to be done with these memoirs? Do you, uh, what additional scholarship do you think uh, this opens up opportunities for? Well, I, I said in my introduction to Freedom Betrayed that it reopens questions that I think deserve to be reopened, they're part of a perpetual conversation about wartime strategy, the, the issues of our alliance with Stalin, uh, for example, in, in the Second World War uh, policy toward China, many, many issues that uh, have been discussed by historians over the years. Someone said that history is a conversation without end, and Hoover, in a way, contributes to that conversation by bringing out, at this point, a point of view that has long been rather uh, marginalized or forgotten, um, and maybe uh, rejected, but it seems to me that he, he makes a case, not necessarily a, a case that one would find persuasive on any point. I, I don't think that would probably be a, uh, uh, the cons- consensus of historians. Nevertheless, he makes us think. And in the, the book, The Crusaders, he is part of a conversation that has really gone on in America for over 100 years, as someone has said, from the days of the populists on to the present, There's this tension, this polarity in our discourse. On the one hand, you have government. On the other hand, you have the economy. And which is the problem? Which is the solution? Uh, Do we need more government regulation or less? And back and forth we go. And Hoover saw that when he said that the election of 32 would affect the destiny of the country for a century to come. So he's part of a very long conversation, a conversation that we're having right now in our current discourse on, on affordable health care and, and other issues. So the, the issues that he's raising are issues that are almost endemic to our political philosophy, our political system. And even though Hoover was talking about issues uh, that manifested themselves in certain ways in the 30s and 40s, nevertheless, I think you can read a lot of these two books, and particularly the Crusade book on domestic policy, and plug those in, and you could make that a blog post today if you agreed with those views. So I, I don't think that these are, are forgotten uh, conversations that have somehow become boring. It strikes me that particularly in the domestic policy area right now, uh, the, the points that Hoover's making, whether again one accepts them or not, are points that uh, resonate with a lot of the American public. So these are, in a sense, if I may use the word, relevant books. Do you think that this is going to help reevaluate, go back and think about his presidency and his uh, attitude and his actions uh, in the wake of the uh, 1929 crash? Do you think that this might shed some light on why he did what he did or thought the way he thought? Or will these books do that, help with that, you believe? Well, I I'm not sure it will do that necessarily, but it will certainly, uh, as people read these books, I think, uh, recover a part of Hoover that's been 
been lost, and that is this long, highly productive ex-presidency. It's been said of him that he invented the hyperactive ex-presidency, and maybe Teddy Roosevelt did in some ways. But anyway, Hoover uh, did not go quietly into the night and play golf. Uh, or, or just recede from public view. He had reasons to want to be in the public limelight. He wanted vindication, as I said, but more fundamentally, he felt that the stakes were so high that he had to crusade. And he loved that word crusade because he felt that there were great issues of supreme importance for the future of the country and that he could not simply stay silent about them. So I think that side of Hoover probably will get another... another um, Look, and also because of the philosophy that's embedded in the, the, these books, uh, I think that that philosophy will uh, continue to attract some attention uh, as we go forward as a nation. George, you've been very, very generous with your time, and I have one question for you. What happens now for you after Hoover? What are you working uh, on now? Well, I am actually working on a book in progress on the personal and political encounter between Hoover and Franklin Roosevelt, uh, a story that began in friendship in World War I, uh, and it curdled into a great rivalry and a loss of friendship by the early 30s. Everyone knows they were political opponents. That's not news. But much went on behind the scenes between them that I think few, if any, historians are fully aware of. And so I'm piecing all those pieces of the puzzle together. Uh, these two Hoover uh, books are primary sources, uh, Hoover in his own words, and they're quite useful to me as I try to, to uh, probe the, uh, the Hoover-Roosevelt story. It's a story that will actually take me in the book beyond Hoover's, beyond Roosevelt's life, because Hoover, after Roosevelt's death, lived 19 more years, and during that time he had some interaction with Mrs. Roosevelt and the Roosevelt children, and uh, also uh, was fighting Roosevelt's legacy. So uh, the, the Hoover-Roosevelt encounter, I can tell you I've just finished revising. I think they're ready for the publisher, 12 chapters, but I have a number more chapters to write, so I have a little distance to go. But that's my major project. I do other smaller projects from time to time on my fields of interest. Thank you, George, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. Drop me a line at newbooks.americanstudies at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.